1: Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST.
2: Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan turning a side hustle into a full hustle or even missed open enrollment want more flexibility find out more about united healthcare insurance plans at uh1.com
0: the conservative party has been thrown into crisis as allegations of sleaze and corruption continue to rumble on i'm rowena mason deputy political editor for the guardian and this is politics weekly
3: I wouldn't hesitate to do it again tomorrow. Absolutely no, no, no question. Last week,
0: all but a few Tory MPs voted with the government to overturn the 30-day suspension for Conservative MP Owen Paterson.
3: Instead of playing politics on on this issue, which is what the, which is what they which is what they are doing. I think that you need to consider the procedures of this House in a spirit of fairness, Mr Speaker. And, in, and we, in, on this side of the House, instead of playing politics, we are getting on with delivering on the people's
0: priorities. Parliamentary please. Commissioner for Standards Catherine Stone had found Patterson breached the rule prohibiting paid advocacy. He had lobbied government ministers on behalf of two private companies who just happened to pay him more than £100,000 a year to advise them, something Patterson still denies. MPs also voted for a complete overhaul in the way the parliamentary standards system investigates allegations of wrongdoing. And that vote did not go down well with the opposition. It's one rule for them and one rule for the rest of us. With former Conservative prime ministers.
3: There's a general whiff of we are the masters now about their behaviour. It has to stop and it has to stop soon.
0: Or with the voters going by some of the polling that's come out. A day later, Johnson U-turned and Patterson resigned. What followed was a week of scrutiny for a Conservative Party swatting away allegations of sleaze. The ex-Tory leader, Ian Duncan-Smith, and former Attorney General Geoffrey Cox are both facing questions over second jobs they have had. And on Wednesday morning, the Conservative MP and Vice Chair of the party, Andrew Bowie, announced his resignation in protest, suggesting he could not defend the government any longer. So when does sleaze turn into corruption? And is democracy on the chopping block in Westminster? That's all in this week's Politics Weekly. But first, I wanted to catch up with my colleague, The Guardian's political editor, Heather Stewart. Heather and I are in Westminster at the moment, following the fallout from the Owen Paterson case over the last week. Now, Heather, a lot has happened since Owen Paterson resigned over breaking MP lobbying rules. But it seems like these second jobs of MPs is the thing that has attracted a lot
4: of scrutiny. What are the rules at the moment? Are MPs allowed second jobs or are they not? They absolutely are allowed second jobs, Yes, yeah, as, lo- as long as they declare it. And as long as they don't do what Owen Paterson uh, was found to have done repeatedly, which was to um, lobby the government, to approach ministers and officials on behalf of those companies that they're being paid for. So there is this whole sort of murky world where MPs are paid for sort of political consultancy or advice or expertise. And, you know, it's, it's meant to be all above board. But of course, there's always this suspicion that You know, why are these companies paying in particular for MPs? It's very often former ministers who've been quite close to government figures. You know, is it perhaps because of the influence or the contacts that they can provide? And this moonlighting or or having second jobs is banned in, in Wales and Scotland. So why not Westminster? Ah, good question. Well, uh, the Prime Minister's spokesman was asked about that this week and um, he talked about doctors and nurses. That's a very small proportion. It though, is a very it? small proportion. So there's a, a Labour MP, for us, for example, Rosanna Allen-Khan, who is an A&E doctor and, um, you know, is alongside her day job goes and does some shifts uh, in hospital. I think she would say that, you know, keeps her close to the concerns of her constituents and so on. But, but as you say, that's a very small proportion of what we're talking about. There's also a long history, of course, of lawyers being, you know, a lawyer or a barrister on the side as well as being an MP. Uh, But yes, doctors and nurses is is quite a special case, I would say.
0: So the controversial second jobs are really around the ones around political consultancy and advisory, which in some cases pay really eye-watering amounts. Which MPs are are under scrutiny now and and which parties in particular?
4: Uh, Well, you did some work yourself on this, Rowena, didn't you? And it made pretty clear that Conservatives are overwhelmingly more likely to have these kinds of second jobs than... Labour MPs are, so more than 90 Conservative MPs do paid work of some kind. And there's been particular scrutiny, of course, on MPs who've had involvement in recent weeks and months in the absolute sort of gold rush of COVID contracts that took place during the pandemic, where we had a a period where the government was in a huge hurry to find providers of products, including testing and PPE and so on. And, and, you know, there was a huge rush. And there is, you know, some evidence that MPs were able to use connections to those companies to, you know, help those companies to to get work with the government. There's there's a lot more um, digging into that that needs to be done, I think
0: would it just be better to give MPs a pay rise some people are arguing along those lines
4: well so there is an argument yes that it would be better just to pay MPs more and and you know then perhaps they wouldn't feel the need to take on these sort of lucrative sidelines these kind of side hustles um i mean i think that would be extremely unpopular so in the wake of the expenses scandal that we saw there was a general feeling i think that that you know politicians were sort of all out for themselves and i think public opinion would not treat well the idea of paying MPs considerably more. So um, it is a bit of a bind. I mean, of course, lots of people would say £80,000 you know, ought to be enough uh, with expenses on the side as well. Um, but its I think it would be very, very controversial, perhaps in an ideal world. Yes, you would pay them more so that, that even people from very humble backgrounds who didn't have um, any kind of in would be able to do the job and put themselves up in London and have a second home in their constituency. But um, I think it would be super unpopular.
0: And is there a sense that some MPs have been bending the rules on this and that is why Catherine Stone, the Parliamentary Commissioner, has has really taken a a keen interest in um, cases such as the Owen Paterson um, affair where he was found to have been directly engaging in, in what MPs call paid advocacy, that is lobbying on behalf of companies that he worked for without properly declaring his link to them?
4: Yeah, I I mean, I think that was I mean, it was it was described in the report on his conduct as a a particularly egregious case. It, It was certainly it was an outlier in terms of the amount of money that he was paid. He was being paid which was more than £100,000 a year but yes I think there is a sense that perhaps I mean in fact one of the standout things about the Paterson case was that he was absolutely unable to see right to the end what he might have done wrong even though it, it seemed to have very clearly broken a whole series of rules including on you know the use of his parliamentary office and the way that he'd made approaches to officials and so on you know he just didn't seem to see that it was a problem and I think you know that in itself raises questions about whether the system is robust enough and whether it works well enough as it stands. Tell me a
0: little bit more about Stone. She's her, her job title is the Parliamentary Commissioner for Standard. Exactly what does she do in that role and why is it problematic for the government?
4: So she's an independent figure. So she's employed by the House of Commons. She's not employed or chosen by the government. She's able to launch her own inquiries, interestingly. So she can launch an inquiry if something's referred to her. So sometimes, for example, MPs refer themselves because they want to sort of clear their name about something that's been written about in the press or so on. But but she can actually launch her own inquiries into issues. And, you know, she has made a, a number of robust findings against MPs, not least against the Prime Minister over the way that he failed to declare a free holiday in Mustique. And that finding was subsequently overturned by the parliamentary committee of standards but but she is this sort of independent figure and she has a remit to sort of roam across MPs behavior and and you know yes yeah, she's made clear she thinks there are some sort of underlying issues that need to be looked at
0: and she doesn't just investigate second jobs, does she? Um, and she's not the only person tasked with investigating potential wrongdoings by parliamentarians, because Chris Bryant, the chair of the Standards Committee, oversees this cross-party group of MPs who judge their peers. Do you think there are any problems with, with this system and, and how are MPs arguing it should be changed? And is, is there any merit in what they're saying?
4: Well, there's two aspects to that. So, so one is, that, and the complaint that the government sort of latched onto last week when it was trying to sort of protect Owen Paterson and prevent him from being punished, was this idea that there's no formal appeal process. There's no sort of right of appeal. That's a bit questionable, I think, because there is... Sort of in the process an appeal in the sense that Catherine Stone makes her report, makes her findings. That's then presented to the Committee for Standards, which, as you say, is this cross-party committee, and it, it then makes a judgment on how serious the findings are and what the what the sort of censure, what the punishment should be, and so on. And then so, it goes to MPs, and then it goes to MPs, which is pretty extraordinary. I mean, it's hard to imagine any other workplace in which you could have some sort of case against you, and and it was independently investigated, and it was found that you'd broken the rules, and then you know what you. Your colleagues get a vote on on how you should be um, punished or whether you should be punished or not. And of course, last week brought the politics sort of pouring into that. I mean, no, normally what happens is these things, as they say, go through on the nod. There's not even a, a vote on these things. They're uncontroversial. The committee decides that the rules have been broken, normally agrees with Catherine Stone's verdict, although there is a chance at that point for the MP to put their case again. But then Parliament normally just rubber stamps it and... and you know the government sort of opened itself up in a way to all kinds of criticisms last week by by you know putting the politics front and centre of this by whipping its MPs to try and protect Paterson so I, th- I think there's a question over whether there's a, a right of appeal and whether that really works there's a much bigger question about whether MPs should have the final say whether they should have any say in how their colleagues should be punished and that's that that's a much more uh, difficult question I think.
0: There's a suspicion as well, isn't there, Heather, that this goes a bit wider for Downing Street than Owen Paterson and that there are more potential scandals over sleaze and investigations to be done into the conduct of of MPs and ministers coming down the tracks that Downing Street might want to avoid and that they tried to change the standard system in order to head that
4: off. What do you make of those um, theories? I think it's absolutely right. I think we, So we know that uh, Catherine Stone is considering whether to investigate the funding of the Prime Minister's flat, the refurbishment of the Downing Street flat, which we know was initially paid for paid for by a Conservative donor and then the Prime Minister paid them back. It was tens of thousands of pounds extraordinarily expensive. There are some sort of fishy questions about that. So his former advisor Dominic Cummings has certainly talked about the idea there were was some sort of suggestion of illegal donations somehow being channelled into that project. Um, he was cleared Boris Johnson by his own uh, advisor on ethics, Lord Gite, who he appointed himself, but there is a sense that Stone might want to look at that. She, she, we know, is waiting for the Electoral Commission to look into the same subject and may then have another look. We we also know that she um, censured him, or, or she sought to censure him over his failure to declare that Mustique holiday, that freebie holiday he had. Well, of course, he's just come back from another freebie holiday provided by Lord Goldsmith. He's declared that on the Minister's uh, Register of Minister's Interests. He hasn't made a separate declaration on the MP's Register of Interests, which is absolutely, or it's, it's exactly what Catherine Stone urged him to do in that previous Mustique case. So that feels a little bit like Number 10, you know, slightly sticking two fingers up to stone and saying, you know, do you want to sort of come for us again? And so there are a lot of questions about whether Johnson is trying to undermine her, to intimidate her perhaps, or just to sort of you know, throw lots of mud in the the hope that those further investigations uh, might never take place.
0: Downing Street say that's absolutely not true, that they weren't trying to take down Catherine Stone as the Parliamentary Commissioner, they were simply trying to... um, bring in reforms of the system. And they've shunted these um, the possibility of reform now onto Chris Bryant as chair of the Standards Committee. He's now looking at it. Uh, and he announced yesterday that a senior judicial figure will advise him on how uh, the procedures for investigating MPs could be improved. What do you think are the prospects of Number 10 agreeing to any attempts to to strengthen the rules against lobbying and against MPs having lucrative second jobs
4: i think they're very slim i mean i mean uh, certainly the prime minister's spokesperson has said uh, well that's for parliament to decide although of course last week they absolutely weren't leaving it for parliament to decide what it did about its own disciplinary procedures they were they were wading right in Um, but the Prime Minister's spokesman has also said this week that he would not be in favour of a blanket ban on second jobs so already they're making very clear that this is something the Prime Minister has views on and would be likely to to wade into if there were proposals that he felt might impinge on his own, you know, ability to kind of go about his life in the way that he wants to and he is someone who tends to kick against constraints of all kinds that's been true throughout his life and it does feel a little bit as though that's... that's, um, Perhaps at least an element, I'm sure there was also an element of wanting to protect, you know, former colleague Patterson, who, who you know, lots of Tory MPs saw as, as loyal and, and, you know, he's had a terrible family tragedy and his wife committed suicide and so on. But, but it, certainly there aren't many people around here who don't think that at least some of Boris Johnson's motivation was, was about trying to sort of protect himself from future investigations.
0: What about a change in behaviour by MPs? Do you think they might um, hang back from taking some of these second jobs in future?
4: So I certainly think there's a feeling at the moment that scrutiny of this kind of behaviour has been uh, really heightened. So... You know, obviously we've been looking at some of these issues, but so have lots of the other papers. There's a lot of focus on it, a lot of discussion about it, and so I would have thought for a time that MPs will think very carefully before some of those roles, or at least being quite so blatant about the ways that they're um, using their influence. Of course, quite how long these things last, it's very difficult to say. And I'm, you know, the expenses scandal had a very, very long, cast a very, very long shadow on on sort of rules and standards here and MPs' behaviour. I'm not sure whether this is, is going to last nearly so long
0: no doubt we'll be covering more stories like this before the next election heather stewart thank you so much for joining me thanks rowena make sure to listen to tuesday's episode of today in focus as jonathan freeland tells nasheen iqbal what exactly happened in the owen patterson case and what impact all these accusations of sleaze will likely have on the prime minister after the break The Guardian's Nazreen Malik and Transparency International's Daniel Bruce discuss when some common sleaze can escalate into all-out corruption. We'll be right back. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
1: Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier.
0: Welcome back to Politics Weekly. I'm Rowena Mason, Deputy Political Editor at The Guardian. Now at the start of the show, we heard the former Conservative Prime Minister John Major deem the government's behaviour of late as unconservative. He followed up by saying that the actions of Johnson and his ministers in the last couple of years, from the illegal prorogation of Parliament to the breaking of international treaties over the Northern Ireland Protocol, was, quote, potentially politically corrupt. So when can we deem a system politically corrupt rather than blame a small number of individuals for sleazy behaviour? Earlier this week, I spoke to Guardian columnist Nezreen Malik and the chief executive of Transparency International UK, Daniel Bruce. Nezreen, let's start with you. You wrote a piece at the start of the week about how you have lived under corrupt regimes before. Can you give us some examples of when, in the places you've lived before,
2: political systems were captured, as you put it? Well, what's really interesting is that w- what we associate with what political capture involves is always a sort of stereotypical image of either a military coup or an undemocratic takeover of politics, either by a kind of royal family or a specific fascist nationalist party. It doesn't always have to look that way. And one particular incident that I find really instructive is what happened in Egypt after the Muslim Brotherhood were overthrown in a military coup that had quite a lot of popular backing, but was still a military coup. And the way that coup was then laundered into respectability by having a national election where only a few candidates stood, and of course Abul Hassisi was the only really viable candidate, shows how that sort of slow creep over the political processes can change something very dramatic, and turns it into something quite respectable that then is reputable and incorporates into international stage. Um, But in the end, what we have is a kind of civil technocratic government led by a military leader who now wears a suit, gives, I think, a good lesson to heed that things that may seem quite dramatic can happen in in slow and unpredictable ways.
0: And you've been noticing some similarities in what you're seeing in the UK recently. It doesn't not as dramatic as what has happened in Egypt, but there are some areas of, of that you
2: can compare. Would you say? Yes, absolutely. And the main one, the main theme that kept recurring when I began to feel like there was some similarity, that there's a lot of discretion. That's the key. There is a lot of discretion that government has to behave in ways that broadly are unaccountable um, because the legal bars for prosecution are so high. And so when people talk about, for example, the cash on a scandal, what they don't realize is that there is an incredibly high legal bar that requires there to be a sort of tangible, explicit agreement between the person who has received the promise of a seat in the House of Lords and a minister for there to be any kind of prosecutable offence. And where that's very similar to uh, other countries where these kind of corrupt systems thrive is there is a huge amount of governmental discretion. There is a wide scope of interpretation of legal parameters of how the government can behave um, and lots of challenges to the judiciary as well based on sovereignty, parliamentary, independence, etc. So that kind of implicit trust in government figures is something that i find quite common in in countries all over the world lots of people are particularly supporters of the government
0: but maybe the public more widely would say the uk is not some kind of tin pot dictatorship isn't it? you know is it, aren't these comparisons a bit wide of the mark
2: well, of course, it isn't. This is the point I tried to make in the piece is that it's not a Tim Pot dictatorship, but it doesn't have to be for things to be worrying. And what I was trying to do was not make a kind of hyperbolic comparison between the UK and, and, and a place like Egypt or Saudi Arabia, or even Russia, which is which is a comparison people were making even within parliament. But to suggest that the danger is when we minimise corruption in our own societies by comparing it constantly to worse examples elsewhere. Corruption is corruption, it's deleterious. Once it sets in, it becomes very hard to reverse. And what I was trying to do was kind of highlight the, the slow march through the institutions of corruption. and By the time we've really got to grips with it, it's too late.
0: Daniel, what do you think about this? Do you think there's any merit in this argument? And why do we consider the UK incorruptible on a level seen under regimes around the world?
3: I think there are two questions that we need to ask ourselves here. The first is, is the current administration doing enough to prevent the opportunities for corruption to exist in public life, and at the heart of government even? And I would contend the answer to that question is no, and I'll explain why in a minute. And then the second question, I think, gets to a lot of what Nazarene is pointing to, which is that our measures being taken by democratically elected leaders of our country that once they have that mandate, seek to weaken the architecture of protections for our democracy, across the judiciary, across the electoral system, across the media. And I would argue that there is evidence that that is going on in all three areas uh, in the UK, and and that is of concern. And to, to my first point, the measures that were brought to the House of Commons last week But for all of the hyperbole around the need to reform the standard system around MPs' behaviour, ultimately, a three-line whip was used to try and use the the, the government's mandate to dismantle part of the standard system and leave oversight of behaviour in a vacuum. So I think when you take those sort of two poles together, um, you know, we should be concerned about the picture in the UK.
0: And what sort of behaviour would you say meets this definition of corruption? Do you think we have seen that in the UK?
3: Corruption is very, actually a very difficult thing to define. Transparency International's definition is the abuse of entrusted power for personal or political gain. And it can have its imperfections because what it can do is it can lead you to believe that corruption has to be very transactional you know a bribe has to have been paid i think w- what we are seeing is a a drifting towards the corrupting of the system which is what i'm concerned about and you know we have the committee on standards in public life Back on the 1st of November, come out with 34 recommendations to strengthen that system across ministerial behaviour, business appointments, the murky world of lobbying and the independence of appointments to public bodies. And again, you know, the government has said, well, we'll respond to that in due course. But actually, in light of recent events, you know, we would argue that is a very powerful evidence-based blueprint for reform, which the government should embrace if it is to demonstrate that it is doing more to prevent the opportunities for the corrupting of the system.
0: And Nazreen, it's not like a government can become corrupt just all of a sudden, is it, as you're arguing? There are some societal conditions that also need to be met, right, like a, a cowed press, maybe apathetic voters or the lack of a political alternative.
2: Corruption... You can define it as, as Daniel did, but it also needs a sort of group, social, institutional agreement on what corruption is to create enough moral outrage to challenge a government when it begins to behave in ways that are seen as corrupt. And what we have in the UK is a press, a sort of print press in particular that is quite sympathetic to the Conservative Party, Interestingly, the incident with Owen Paterson showed that there was still a limit to that sympathy, but there is enough sympathy for, so the government could think that it can broadly push the envelope and really won't get much of a pushback. What's happened after Brexit is that there is sort of large mandate given to the Conservative Party that pretty much mimics the large mandates that autocracies have in the sense that there is no risk There is no danger of an uprising. There is no danger that the government's going to be turfed out of office, either via an early election or just like mass public anger at something. So that makes governments behave in ways that are reckless because they feel like there isn't really going to be that much of a consequence to their behaviour. And the third condition is a public where enough people are either checked out of the political system or a large section of the public is supportive of the government because they back the government for a specific project. That also gives the government a lot of power to behave in ways that assail norms, if not laws. And Daniel, looking at the wider picture, what
0: stops a political system from becoming corrupt? And do we have the right restrictions in place at the moment
3: Well, our current system is based on convention, and it's based on a view that honourable members will act honourably. And if they don't, that the convention-based system for reprimanding behaviour that doesn't meet that standard will be applied consistently. You know, that's worked at a point in time. Um, I think the evidence suggests very clearly, not just from the last week, but, you know, the concerns that we've had for some years now, that that conventions-based system isn't working anymore. And so that really does leave you with the challenge to so say that actually you you need to make the system more robust. And in many areas, again, lobbying, ministerial behaviour, that means primary legislation being changed or introduced um, to move things forward. And it in particular means that you need a greater degree of independence in the oversight of all of your standards. But again, you know, persuading um, the current administration that that is an agenda worth pursuing uh, is very challenging. And interestingly, when you look at countries like Canada, the US and Ireland, and and similar democracies, uh, a lot of their arrangements at the very heart of government are a lot more stringent than those that we see in the UK today. So there's there's an evidence base that actually it can be done and should be done.
0: Nazarene, do do you think, after having lived under corrupt regimes in the past, that there's anything that's happened in the last week that could persuade the government to change its behaviour and to avoid what John Major called perhaps politically corrupt?
2: No, in a word. Um, No. And I think one important element of that pessimism is the point that you just mentioned, which is that Number 10 has a tendency to dig in when it's in trouble. And that is one of the sort of counterintuitive strengths of the Conservative Party, that it's a sort of party that owns the libs, basically, that doesn't bow down to its enemies. Uh, There is a very firm line, whatever the accusation is, whether it's Priti Patel's bullying allegations, whether it's Dominic Cummings breaking lockdown rules, any of these incidents, the, the response from government has always been consistent, which is we reject the very premise of the accusation because that premise is a politicised one. Um, and so even though there has been this cut through, I think there will be a brief moment uh, of humility, minuscule, you, if you blink, you'll miss it. And actually, it already has passed. And then there will be a retrenchment
0: Nezreen Malik and Daniel Bruce, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much. It was a
3: pleasure. Thank you very much.
0: And that's all from us this week. Make sure to listen to Friday's episode of Politics Weekly Extra to hear Jonathan Friedland's conversation with Susan Page as they profile one of the most formidable tacticians on Capitol Hill, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi. But for now, I want to thank our guests Heather Stewart, Nezreen Malik and Daniel Bruce. The producers were Danielle Stevens and Yolene Goffin. I'm Rowena Mason. Look after yourselves and thanks for listening. This is The Guardian.
1: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music. For all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com/newsadfree. That's amazon.com/newsadfree to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
4: Hi, this is Bachelor Clues from Game of Roses of course.